We call this story the prodigal son, right? But really, it should be called the prodigal sons. The Lord begins the story, a man had two sons. And both sons are integral to the point that he's trying to make. And it leads us back to the very beginning of the passage, the occasion for this story in the first place. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 read as following. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near, coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The two sons symbolize the two groups of people, sinners and Pharisees. The sinners are represented by the older son who, or rather the sinners are represented by the younger son who strikes out from home and loses everything in loose living. And the Pharisees are represented by the older son who grumbles and complains at his father's liberal compassion. And these two sons, it seems, are universal types. Humanity, in other words, can be neatly classed according to their representative, either the younger or the older. But perhaps, and I think so, it's more so that these two sons are in each of us. Sometimes we're the younger son, foolish and brash, while at other times we're the older son, self-righteous and entitled. The challenge then is to find ourselves in each of these sons, to enter their experience and to see it as our own. And we do so, putting ourselves in their shoes, not simply to learn lessons, good though that is, we identify with the two sons to ultimately learn about their father. That's our aim here. Because their father is the father who has grace and compassion for both of his sons, which consequently, depending on what day it is, are us. So in them, we learn about ourselves, the two sides of our sinful human nature. And in them, more importantly, we learn about the Father and how he graciously deals with his wayward children. So our task this morning is to see ourselves in the younger son. We'll come to the older son next week. Um, to, To learn from this younger son and to learn to receive the Father's love in Christ. And so what drives this younger son to abandon his family and to strike out for distant lands is a desire for freedom, it seems. He does a terrible dishonor to his father by asking for the inheritance, basically wishing him dead. And then he gathers all his things and heads out, the passage says, for a distant country. And that distant country is everything his home is not. It's very antithesis. Every angsty teenager comes to mind. The constraints of home, family, and friends, and tradition keep them from becoming who they are. In the distant country, away from home, they can realize themselves. However, the younger son's rebellion is not simply against his backward home, but a moral rebellion against everything that home represents. To him... Home is the entire Jewish way of life, its moral law, its traditions and rituals. 
its demands and concessions. He leaves this home for a distant country. In other words, Gentile lands. Among a people that know nothing of Yahweh or the Torah or the Jewish way of life, the younger son can finally be free. He can live his life as he wants to. There's no father to correct him, no mother to admonish him. He can do as he pleases. He can know a woman. He can revel in the world's glories. He can scoop everything from life until there's nothing left. And that is what striking out from home affords him. He can become something new. He can shake free from others' plans for him. Quite simply, he can do as he desires. And there's much to be said about the son's experience as it pertains to us. But I think primarily, it embodies the only kind of freedom that we know today. And that is, quite simply, freedom from. We understand freedom as the breaking down of every boundary, be it moral or spiritual or cultural or whatever. With these external voices of authority silenced, no longer telling us who we are, we are now free to be our authentic selves. I'm my own master. Thus, the imperative of leaving, whether that's metaphorical or literal, is crucial. At home, still subject to external authority, be it my father or be it whatever, I can never realize myself. That objective can only be realized if I go away, if I journey on to a distant country. Therefore, this younger son leaves. And the passage puts it quite succinctly. In the distant country, he squanders his estate with loose living. And that word, squandered, is important. And the passage uses others like it. He goes to the distant country and he spent everything. He became impoverished. He was dying with hunger. It speaks obviously to the consequences of that lifestyle. Turning his passions and lust loose ultimately made him a slave to them. His new masters required a steep price. They dispensed their goods, but at the cost of landing him in the pig's pen quite literally. And the story, the way Jesus tells it, is emphasized to uh, make known the depths of his descent, to show the uncleanness into which the younger son plunged, in, plunged into. It ends in the pig pen, but it begins with him, as we've said, leaving for a distant country. Already for a Jewish, a Jewish person, this is uncleanness. Pagans were not to be associated with, much less embraced as fellow citizens. But when famine had struck, and the younger son had spent all his estate on prostitutes, his fellow citizens were nowhere to be found. The passage says, no one was giving anything to him. The younger son went to a distant country to find himself, but there he lost himself. It speaks to the spiritual desolation this libertarian freedom 
brings. And tragically so. It turns out that when one tears down every fence, that when one cuts loose from every ties, from every tie, they lose themselves in the open space. It is what the Apostle Peter calls an excess of dissipation. It certainly feels like freedom to do as one pleases, but in the end, that very freedom begins to erode and evaporate one's identity. Who they are, their particularity, their individuality, what makes them them, eventually dissipates in their sin. And it's tragic because we can identify with the younger son. We have all been him, looking and longing for something that's right in front of us, but ultimately that we're blind to. The very thing that the son desired, and he'll realize this in a minute, was in the father, yet he struck out for a distant country. And so it is for us, the very thing that we desire is with the Father, yet we cannot see it. And so attempting to find ourselves, to realize what it is that's deep in our hearts, we lose ourselves. But the story goes on. The younger son came to his senses. It's an interesting phrase that is actually translated, he came to himself. It puts his situation in sharp focus. In the pig's pen, beneath a pig's dignity even, the younger son comes back to himself. It's a rock bottom moment to be sure, but it's more than that. In the midst of his situation, the younger son remembered who he was. He came to himself, the passage says. So it seems that the foreignness of his surroundings had finally dawned on him. Among the pigs, he remembered home. And in that remembrance, he recognized just how homeless he truly was. This, living in carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity, is not who I am, he says to himself. The uncleanness and the uh, dirtiness of his situation was becoming clear to him. I'm the son of a good man. He remembers his father and the person his father raised him to be. He asks himself, what am I doing here? He came to himself. And here's the point. The younger son comes back to himself, but in that very act of coming back to himself, he find, what he finds is a compass leading him out of himself and back to his father. He comes to himself And he's led back to his father. And now the truth contained in those words is as subtle as it is profound. When one comes to their true identity, it points them to God. And when one comes to God, it points them to their true identity. All this time, we can sympathize with this younger son. He had been searching for himself. He hit the open road and traveled to distant lands to uncover the truth. But it had been there all along, at home, with his father. And it's the same way for us. Our identity is not determined out there in the distant country, but at home, in relation to God the Father. John Calvin, 
uh, an ancient theologian, opens his massive work on Christian doctrine with a startling insight. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and ourselves. But as the two are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. In other words, the questions, who is God and who am I, are not two different questions. Rather, as Calvin says, the two are connected by many ties. If one comes to themselves and truly comes to themselves, they necessarily come to God. And if one comes to God, then necessarily they come to themselves. And don't be mistaken, I don't mean this in a new agey, the divine is within you kind of way, but rather in the sense that one can only know God. I'm not talking here about just facts about God, but truly know God. One can only know God through their relationship with Him, through personal trust. We can't stand objectively as a third party and analyze God. That knowledge only comes through our relationship to Him. It's intensely personal. To venture deeper into the divine mystery is also to venture deeper into the human mystery. Calvin continues, he says, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such uh, contemplation to look at himself. These two forms of knowledge, knowing God and knowing myself, are connected. And that's what happens in the younger son's experience. He comes to himself and he's pointed back to his father. So what's the upshot of all this? Why why are we bringing this up? Well, I think it, it provides an answer to the question our age is so preoccupied with. Who am I? The thing that everybody is after these days, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter, is personal authenticity. To be their true self. And that's what most all social movements are about. One's right to be who they are. But like the younger son, rather, the, the lie that we are told is that to become who I am, to discover myself, to realize myself, I have to go to the distant country. The shackles of external authority, be it my parents or the culture that I grew up in or the institutions around me or my religion, whatever it is, those external authorities have to be set aside and the only voice that can tell me who I am is my own. And so I have to journey into the distant country metaphorically to discover myself. I have to get out. It reminds me of a movie that I really have come to love. It's called Lady Bird. And that name is the name of, or that title is the name of the main character. Her name is Ladybird, but it's a self-given name. Uh, the name that her parents gave to her was Christine. And that Christine, renaming herself Ladybird, defines her personal struggle for authenticity. Deep down, she's not really a Christine. She's a Ladybird, unique. Fierce, adventurous, unafraid. And all that we find throughout the course of the movie that Lady Bird wants to do is escape the life that she's been given. 
She grows up in Sacramento. She's poor. She's not in with the cool kids, so on and so forth. And she just wants to leave. She wants to leave behind her upbringing and strike out for the distant country and there craft a new identity for herself. And to make a long story short, Lady Bird does. She winds up in New York City. And after drinking too much, she wakes up in a hospital bed. And she looks down at her hospital bracelet and it reads, Christine McPherson. She checks herself out and makes her way down the street. And she hears church bells in the distance. And she asks a random passerby what day it is. Sunday, he says. And so she wanders into the church where it seems that the bells and the choir is beckoning her. And she begins to, at least the way the movie portrays it, she's watching and then it turns to her and she begins to cry. And the movie ends with Lady Bird exiting the church and making a call home and leaving a voicemail. Hi, Mom and Dad, she says. It's me, Christine. It's the name you gave me. It's a good one. It's her own prodigal son moment, you might say. She reconciles herself to and accepts her true identity, the one given to her. She's Christine. And I take her story and the story of the younger son to be saying the same thing. Our identity, ultimately, is not the one that we give ourselves, not who we make ourselves out to be, the one that we forge for ourselves in the distant country, but our identity is the one given to us. Our name, our identity, is the one that the Father bestows upon us. And this is what the younger son realizes. I'm not this pagan fool wasting away in foreign lands. I'm my father's son. What am I doing here? And the same realization that he had is the one that we must constantly have. Who you are, the deepest thing that defines you, was determined and settled at your baptism. Plunged beneath the waters, those old identities were washed away. They died with Christ. And rising above the waters, a new word was spoken over you. The same word that was spoken over Jesus. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. We are not who we think we are. We are not who others tell us who we are. We're not even what we've done. We are, in the very core of our being, who God says we are. And as believers, he says that we are his beloved children. We are, as the New Testament says again and again, in Christ, who is the Father's true child. So, as the Father's children his beloved, and those who are well-pleasing to him, we must constantly come back to ourselves, having that same experience as the prodigal son, remembering who we are and not taking that for granted. One is called by and ventures into the distant country when they forget who they are. That forgetfulness and ingratitude produces a certain disdain for our given identity. We begin to long for something else, and subsequently... It leads us to search for a new one, and it leads us into the distant country where there is nothing truly good for us to be had. So the younger son realizes all this. He remembered who he was. 
he came to himself. And in heartbreakingly beautiful words, it says, he got up and came to his father. And thus begins his journey homeward. He ventures back to his father, and subsequently, he ventures back to himself. The two are the same. And he has his words already planned out and rehearsed. He will humble himself before his father and beg to be made like one of his servants. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, in all honesty, even that's quite a bold request. Considering how greatly he had dishonored his father and their family, becoming as one of his hired servants is the best case scenario. But the passage says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You can imagine the younger son's mixed emotions. Coming back home after all that he has done, then his father falls upon him in such a way. Shame and joy, regret and relief, but probably most of all, surprise. The spectacle of his father running toward him combined with his already guilty conscience probably had him fearing the worst, a bit like Jacob awaiting his brother Esau. Yet before the son's fear can fully express itself, he's overcome by his father's loving compassion. Kisses and hugs and tears rain down upon him. Finally, the son creates some distance between him and his father. He collects himself and he recites his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can finish, the father's compassion burst out upon him again. He interrupts his son's moment of truth and calls for the servants to deck him with the best clothes and to prepare a celebration. The father's sheer joy pours out and extinguishes any bitterness or pain that he may have harbored against his son. He hardly remembers his son's offense for the joy that his son who was dead, has come to life again. Now, in strictly human terms, this story is deeply moving. Even in popular culture, it's just ingrained into our imagination. But in divine terms, it's positively mind-blowing. The Father's love, as constructed in this story, embodies God's love for mankind as expressed in Jesus Christ. And the first and primary thing for us to notice is that the, it is the Father's total disregard for restitution or for penance or for compensation of his losses. The Son had royally messed up, squandered everything. And that's not even on the Father's mind. His concern is for the well being of his Son. In the Father's example, the sheer goodness and purity of God's love shines forth. And I say purity because there's not the slightest hint of self-regard or personal offense in the Father's response, but only a pure love for His Son. Another term 
we might put to the Father's response is humility. Again, the Father demonstrates a self-forgetfulness, an almost easygoing attitude toward his son's treachery against him. It's something that C.S. Lewis calls divine humility. He says, I call this a divine humility because it is a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. A poor thing to come to him as a last resort, to offer up our own when it's no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us, even though we have shown we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. It is hardly complimentary to God that we should choose him as an alternative to hell. Yet even this he accepts. Imagine, to return to the story for a moment, that the father were proud. This moving story of reconciliation and redemption would look something much different. The son, rather than being accepted back into his father's house, would bear the full consequence of his decision. Any hopes of returning home, of even having a home, would be forever gone. The father's honor and uh, dignity would be vindicated and restored, but his son would be lost for good. His son would venture back into the distant country. Yet, the father isn't proud, and therefore neither is ours. God is, and let the absolute absurdity of this sink in. God is humble. Though his children choose the distant country and the pig's pen over him a hundred times to one, he still accepts us. He stoops to conquer. We return to him because in all our journeying, we found nothing better in the world. And yet, he doesn't turn us away. He doesn't reject us. But wonder of all wonders, he runs out to meet us. He kisses us and he embraces us and he welcomes us again. This is the Father's love. He is not self-regarding and therefore he does not make us grovel before him having to debase ourselves and restore his honor that we might possibly merit his reluctant forgiveness. Rather with him, there is no concern for his honor or dishonor but only the good of his creatures. And don't misunderstand, this isn't to make God morally lax or blithely tolerant or to diminish his holiness in any way. It's just the opposite. It proclaims his utter and glorious self-sufficiency. We must always keep in mind that God does not need his creatures. To be quite honest, his glory and honor are not diminished. His feelings and ego are not hurt when we fail to serve Him. The Apostle Paul says, Acts chapter 17, God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. In regard to His honor, therefore, there is nothing a mere human could add or subtract from Him. His honor, His glory, His dignity is already and always perfectly complete. The Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit are sufficient for that task themselves. 
And so is it bad news to discover that God doesn't need us? It's just the opposite. It is the good news. God's self-sufficiency, his utter unneediness, is what enables him to respond to us in the manner that he does, to treat his erring sons and daughters with this extravagant love. He is absolutely free from needing us, and therefore he is free to love us absolutely. His personal concerns, be it for his glory or his happiness or whatever, are already settled. He needs nothing from us. And so his concern is only for us. To say anything else would be to make God too small and to make ourselves too big. God is not determined by man. And therefore, man has hope. And so this, God's freedom, God's absolute freedom to love absolutely, is what restores us to great dignity in his presence. We come before him desperately hoping, our faith trembling and barely holding on, that God just might admit us back into his presence as second-rate saints. We will have to carry this shame all of our days, but at least we made it in. And so like the younger son, we come and we present our bargain. I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Make me as one of your hired men. Just please let me in. I'm not asking for much. Just please let me in. But the greatness of God's compassion lasts the weakness of our faith to shame. We thought that he might be tight-fisted and stingy with his love like us, but he proves to be boundlessly magnanimous and generous. Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are indeed unlike ours. And most evidently, in his profuse forgiveness. Our hearts are too hard to endure such personal offense. Our spirits are too concerned with our own dignity to pardon the transgressor, but not so with God. He's free. His ways are not our ways. And that is what makes God's love so hard to accept at times. It's so unprecedented so different from the cold calculations that we're used to, that it is at times extremely hard to embrace. Listen to Henry Nouwen on the issue. He says, One of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness. There is something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents us from letting God erase our past and offer us a completely new beginning. Sometimes it seems as though I want to prove to God that my darkness is too great to overcome. While God wants to restore me to the full dignity of sonship, I keep insisting that I will settle for being a hired servant. And how true those words are. He says, there's something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents us from letting God erase our past. To be honest, I don't know what that something is, but I know it's in there. I know there's something that wants to hold on to my sins. 
And maybe that something is different for each of us. It's one's desire to earn it, to make themselves worthy. And therefore, they don't want to accept God's love until finally, I've, I've earned it. I've proved myself to be worth it. To another, it's their lack of faith. How can this possibly be? How could God love me this way? Or for another, it's their pride. It's hard to say. But that something, whatever it is, must be overcome. We have to let ourselves be loved by God. It sounds unbearably cheesy to let oneself be loved by God, but it's true. It's true. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. But in the end, maybe the point of this story of the prodigal son is that we're supposed to see Jesus as the true prodigal son. He wandered far away from the glory and dignity of his father's home to come here, the distant country. He came to this unclean place to dwell among us, unclean creatures. He spent his resources and exhausted his very life serving us. He descended into the depths, into the very grave, but then he came to himself. He got up and came back to his father. But unlike the younger brother, he did not return home empty-handed. Instead, he returned with other brothers and sisters whom he had brought home from the distant country, you and I. Let's pray.